This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Dancing on the Tightrope, Transcending the Habits of Your Mind and Awakening to Your Fullest Life. If a life can feel at times like a challenging tightrope walk, how do we face life's difficulties yet remain resilient and open-hearted? Rather than seeking perfect balance or tiptoeing on our journey, how do we learn to embrace life and dance in order to live most fully? In this book, clinical psychologist and award-winning author, Dr. Beth Curlin reveals five common obstacles, habits of the mind that get in the way of living your fullest life, and shares five tools to transform those obstacles into lasting inner resources for resilience, peace, and joy. This practical yet inspirational book draws upon evidence-based psychology practices and what neuroscience teaches us about the evolution and hardwiring of the brain. In addition, Beth shares her own personal experience and her clinical expertise from over 20 years in the field. It addresses the challenges of being human and offers insights on how to bring greater awareness, self-compassion, meaning, and authentic happiness into our lives. Her book was awarded finalist in the Best Motivational Book category by Next Generation Indie Book Awards and was recognized on the Top 12 Book Pick List by Spirited Woman. Dr. Beth Curlin is a clinical psychologist, a TEDx speaker, and author of three books, Dancing on the Tightrope, The Transformative Power of 10 Minutes, and Gifts of the Rain Puddle. Beth is passionate about teaching mindfulness-informed practices and mind-body strategies to help people cultivate whole-person health and well-being. She's been providing evidence-based practices to people across the lifespan for over 25 years and has a psychotherapy practice in Norwood, Mass. Beth is a regular blog writer for Psychology Today and Psych Central. For more information, you can visit her website at bethcurland.com. There you will find some free meditations. You can also find her on the app Insight Timer. Beth is currently developing an eight-week online class based on her books, which will be available in 2021. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Spiritual Practice and Mindfulness, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Elizabeth Cronin, a host of the channel. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Beth Curland, author of Dancing on the Tightrope. 
transcending the habits of your mind and awakening to your fullest life. Thanks for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. Great. I am wondering if you would start off by telling listeners a little bit about yourself, how you got into mindfulness, and then how you came to write this book. Sure. So sort of think about um, how, how I want to share this. I, th- I, think I, I think about this as really as, as two different pathways, two different paths. Um, one, my professional journey and one, my personal journey. And I think that they both really intersect in, in this book and in my coming to write this book. So from just a, a professional journey, I'm a clinical psychologist and I've been in practice for over 25 years now. And I, I really um, decided I wanted to be a psychologist when I was in 11th grade. I had taken a, a social psychology class in high school and I got to be a mentor to a, a younger uh, middle school student. And I just, there was something that really spoke to me that just one of those callings, mm-hmm. um, that, you know, for me. So, so I went on this very straight path to becoming a psychologist and went straight on college, studying psychology and then graduate school. And then um, I had the, the privilege really, I would say of, of working with Dr. Robert Brooks on my internship. I was doing an internship at McLean Hospital and Bob Brooks uh, was my mentor there. And he really has done such wonderful, wonderful work on resilience. And one of the things that really stood out from my early training with him was that a, a lot of graduate schools kind of focused on psychopathology, looking at what's, what's wrong, you know, um, it, it, looking through that lens. And, and, and Dr. Brooks really focuses on this idea of, of working from strength and being able to notice what are people's and what he calls islands of competence, and so it just really shifted a framework and a foundation for me in terms of how I approach working with people, really working from strength and being really interested in this idea of resilience and how we, we can build resilience. And then certainly more recently in my professional life and kind of a lot of things in between, but I've been very influenced by the work, inspired by the work of Rick Hansen who is a neuropsychologist and, um, and also really focuses a lot on resilience and this idea of how, how we grow in our resources. You know, so, so there's this idea that well-being is something that can be cultivated. That, and, and actually I heard a, a quote that Richard Davidson, who's one of my favorite uh, neuroscientist researchers, in an interview he said, um, and I think I'm quoting this correctly, well-being is fundamentally no different than learning to play the cello. So there's this idea of being able to really learn and cultivate and practice certain skills that can help us show up differently in our lives. So all of that is kind of on this professional path. And, um, and then in my personal life, my personal path from an early age, I would say probably just my innate wiring that I'm certainly, I would consider myself a type A, high stress person by nature, a good bit of anxiety wired in there. 
from birth, I, I, I believe. And, um, and so that's kind of this temperament that I've carried with me. And then that intersected with this um, tragedy that I, I dealt with early in my life. My mom died when I was 15 in, in, a, in a sudden accident, a car accident. So um, I carried a lot of that you know, grief and sadness with me. Um, and so there's really, it, it, that really pushed me in two different directions, I think. One is it's towards a sense of personal agency. How can I really make this life as full as possible with the time that I have here on this planet? And what are the things that I can do that are in my control? How do I cultivate my own well-being? Um, and so sort of, it, you know, that direction, but also kind of a seemingly dichotomous path, this other place of really, how do I hold my own suffering? How do I uh, handle this world in which there is so much that's also out of our control? And that is the uncertainty of being a human being on this planet. And so really trying to find a way for myself to, to work with that. And, and I have had the privilege of working with some amazing therapists in my early years. Um, so really my own experience with therapy and then discovering the mind-body practices and mindfulness and other mind-body practices probably certainly from the, when I was in college and onward. And that I really found was very transformative in my own healing process, in my own journey, um, and still is every day, that it's really something that I am constantly coming, coming to and using and calling up. So, so I think those, those two worlds intersected, you know, in terms of my own personal journey and finding things that were really helpful for me in my own life. And as far as just dealing with some of the stressors and challenges of life, and then bringing some of these tools progressively into my work with my patients and finding how it was very transformative for them as well. Um, and being able to have this privilege of being a, a, a psychologist, so sort of that professional hat, um, but also then having this opportunity to, to write this book, um, to weave together some of the personal and the psychological and the neuroscience and all of that together into something that I can share with people. So, and, and you do it nicely in such a small, easy to read book. I mean, it's so full of information and you've sort of kind of gone through a lot of, um, and, and sort of pulled out just the key points that I think are really important that the people are selfless now, like brain plasticity and those kinds of things and how, how these are, you can use tools and you can develop these things. Mm -hmm. um, so you did actually weave your professional and personal and the stories and vignettes that you write about. It's very, very, um, very easy to, to take in the way you've written it, which is really wonderful. I'm curious though, when did you first get exposed to like meditation? So I, I, I would say I, I dabbled a bit with meditation in college um, and did some more at that time, I would say guided imagery. 
that I found was, was really helpful for me. And just something that it, I was just pulled to it. I've always just gravitated to some of these things. And um, the book, or did you meet somebody that was talking about it or? Um, so there was a book that I recall now that you're asking me this written by um, Shakti Gowan. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name correctly. I think it was called Creative Visualization. And I believe that might have been the first book that I came across back in, you know, late high school or early college that just kind of piqued my interest in this whole idea of meditation. Um, and then I just found myself drawn over and over again to, you know, as a psychologist, I have to take continuing education credits all the time. And I would just always be gravitating towards the the things that had to do with mindfulness or meditation or mind-body strategies. Um, and, and just over the years, really pursued more trainings in that and um, have just deepened my own personal practice over the years and have found it uh, so helpful in my own life. Yes, and you, you actually share a nice... Um story, a scary story about um, being pregnant and, and needing to, yes, needing to deliver your baby early and, and using your mindfulness skills and talk about how that's one of the reasons why if we practice on a regular basis, then in the midst of a crisis, you know, it's, it would act first, it will occur to you. And secondly, you'll have, you'll do it with, with better focus. Um, I don't know if you want to share that story or if there's another story that you have um, I think as I'm teaching people, I find that they really like to know if I have a personal story I can share that helps them see, oh, okay, now I, I get it. And you do, like I said, it, the book is full of little vignettes of other people, but, um, but I yeah, think happy to about, share. yeah, people teaching, I think people want to know why, why are you teaching this? Yeah. So that particular story, and let's see, my daughter is, uh, now 25. So that was 25 years ago. And, um, and at that time, I had been doing some meditation. Um, I had had every intention of having natural childbirth. And so I was, you know, working, you know, also just focusing on some breathing strategies and things like that. But it's something that I and actually, I, I love to swim. And so I actually found in the pool when I would swim during my pregnancy, I would do a lot of visualization and meditation and really just focusing on um, various mantras or my breath. Swimming really lends itself to that, I find, in a lot of ways. So I had all these months of, um, you know, kind of leading up to this, what turned out to be a very unexpected delivery. Um, so I was... Uh, just short of, um, so it's like, I think I was, well, just after 32 weeks. And at that point, um, my husband had gone away for the, for the weekend. We figured, oh, that's no big deal. You know, fine travel, he'll be back. And I started having premature contractions and ended up in the hospital. And then they sent me home thinking that it was just, you know, some premature contractions that could be controlled. And it turns out, um, thankfully, my, my husband did get back. Um, and shortly after that, I started experiencing some really severe 
pain and kind of ended up rushing to the hospital very early the next morning um, and had just sort of a rare condition in, in which my body was reacting very badly to the pregnancy. And I was told, um, you know, we're delivering your baby right now. Um, and at that point, actually, my husband, we thought I just had the stomach flu or something. So he had gone, you know, left the hospital to gone back to work for a few hours. Um, so the doctor was, you know, it's like, can I call my husband at least? And she's like, I got to break in your water first. So it was very emergency kind of situation. Um, he did, of course, make it right back. But, but I just remember throughout all of that, that um, I had this practice of just coming, coming back to my breath and, and just this, this inner anchor that I had. And so I, I found that that was so stabilizing for me, despite, and, and it's really interesting because as somebody who certainly this anxious temperament, right. that kind of experience I would, would have thought, you know, could have really just spiraled me, but somehow I was able to go into this place, which became familiar for me, just this, this internal place of really being present with, with my breath and with focusing on, you know, in what was happening just in this present moment, not letting my mind kind of race to, you know, the what ifs. Um, and, and it really helped ground me and, and get me through this experience. Yeah, it, it's interesting because I, as I read that, I thought that's a very panicky, you know, you're eight weeks before the baby's due. You don't even know what, how many pounds your baby is. And, you know, that's definitely, I have a lot of anxiety too. I think panic would set in. And I started wondering if you'd not only been practicing the, the breathing when you were in the pool or swimming, but I also wonder if you over and over were practicing when I have this baby, I'm going to use these skills like over and over and over. You know what I mean? That so that regardless of the condition under which you were having the baby, right. you really have time to use the skills. Yeah, and and I think there's something that I found increasingly over the years too, and certainly in the pandemic, you know, which we're in right now, I have found this incredibly helpful for me because you know, in the face of all of this uncertainty and all of the that that there is with, as I, at least from my experience of, of practicing meditation, just an, it's sort of an inner anchor or is this inner core of stability that even though there might be huge turbulent waves at, on the surface of the ocean, you know, if you imagine um, an anchor holding a ship securely and, and down, you know, with the anchor attached to that ocean floor, that down deep below the water, there's some inner stillness there. There's some calmness. And so this idea of um, being able to observe what's happening without being swept away by those big passing waves. And, and I find that that's been part of my mindfulness practice. Yeah, I, I think I find the anchor, the idea of an anchor really helpful too. just something to kind of come back to and, and hold me sort of still or keep me stable when I'm kind of starting to blow around in the breeze. And then another thing, though, that I think is part of accessing an anchor is um, that you cleverly kind of 
refer to in, in a unique way, and you talk about it as sort of the diet, um, a diet, like the just the self-talk. Um, you also, you know, the, the book is full of really clever, cute little things like, you know, the finger trap and, and you, you know, people can get the book in it and enjoy that because it was a little fun. I mean, it was a little, little I bit. To, I was, I'm glad I was trying to make it a little fun. <laughs> spirited for, you know, for a book that actually gets into neuroscience and is talking about something that's very life changing and has a deep effect on people. It was fun to sort of see, you know, I forget the one you had about the, like the person in the movie theater who's just talking. Oh Yeah. Yeah, so I, I tried to, and actually, can I make a quick comment just, just to say, just in, for people listening, um, you know, for me, I find that anger and breath very helpful, but not everybody, can, you know, um, finds the breath the most helpful kind of thing, especially um, people who may have experienced trauma, um, that actually the breath, at, at least early on in mindfulness training can be triggering for some people. So just mentioning that, because I think pe some people um, who may have experienced trauma and then try to meditate and focus on their breath can actually become more triggered and then feel like I'm doing this wrong. And so I think that's just important to know that there are lots of different ways into mindfulness and the breath is just one. Right, right. Yeah, I've had, um, I've been working with people and have them say like, don't tell me to pay attention to my breath. I was, I grew up, everybody saying me, t telling me to take a deep breath and they find it very condescending. And so I, I yeah, I, I kind of know what you mean. Yeah. At the same time, if you're going to, even if you pick a different anchor, like say you decide to focus on the noises around you or you, how your feet feel on the floor, or whatever you're using as an anchor. What I found interesting um, was this other idea that you know, you need to practice what you say to yourself and you, you kind of talk about your regular, the diet. Um, yeah. And because when I'm sitting and meditating, I have actually need to remember to say to myself, just, you know, gently and lovingly without judgment, go back to your breathing. I, so it's a combination of accessing an anchor and being able to guide yourself back to the anchor. Yeah. And I, and I think that that, so I can speak to the diet a little bit and maybe put it into a larger framework of the, of the book. So actually this book grew out of um, my giving some talks on my first book. So, so the first book I wrote was The Transformative Power of 10 Minutes, an eight-week guide to reducing stress and cultivating well-being. And I started giving some talks. I remember I did a talk at, at uh, BU School of Public Health to some of the students there. And I was, I was putting together, you know, some of my ideas for this. I started um, seeing, and, and it's really, I, I think, just pulling together, like, I don't think I'm reinventing anything new here. I'm really just integrating all of these things that are already there. But what struck me is that there are these mental habits that we all can fall into because of just on the basis of, of being human and the way that our brains evolved over millions of years to help us survive as a species. And I really started seeing, at least, you know, from my lens here, that these five mental habits that we can fall into, and there may be more than that, but that's really what I was focusing on in the book. 
and trying to understand you know, these mental habits that are really automatic, almost old programs, old wiring, old conditioning that, it, that again helped our ancestors survive harsh conditions, but that run in the backgrounds of our minds and often play out by default. So when we're not bringing intention or attention to what we're doing, we tend to fall into some of these, these default settings. Um, but so the, the, the diet connects to one of these mental habits that I call the, the noisy person at the movie theater. Um, and, and I think most people can um, relate to this. Well, I'll share the image and then, but you know, if you're sitting in the movie theater and you're just trying to enjoy your movie and all of a sudden you have this noisy person come and plop themselves down next to you and just imagine that they start giving you a running commentary of the whole movie. You know, oh my God, did you see that? Oh, this is going to be a disaster. I can't believe she said that. What is she doing? Oh, I can, this, I can see where this is going. This is not going to end well. You know, and here you are just trying to enjoy your movie and you have this constant narrator next to you, you know, telling you all these things and, and, and really recognizing that when we stop and look, I think most people experience, yeah, I kind of have that inner dialogue going on in my mind, this inner chatter, this inner narrative that often is an overlay of our experience. So we have what we're experiencing and then we have that dialogue or that commentary about what's happening. And and there's a lot, I guess, not getting too much into the evolution of the, you know, language obviously ha has a, a very essential role for us, um, but it does take us out of our sensory experience, out of, you know, some of the present moment. We can get caught in these stories in our head. And, um, and often, certainly in my work as a psychologist over all these years in my own life, can really see that there's some really common stories that people get stuck in, you know, I'm not enough, not good enough. Um, feeling, you know, falling short in ways um, and just common ways that our, our mind and our brains can, can distort things. Our thinking can be inaccurate. It can be catastrophic. It can, um, you know, take on all of these different qualities. And so it, it, trying to externalize that through this noisy person in the movie theater, you know, recognizing this inner dialogue that we have and, and really trying to understand that, um, that this, this inner mental chatter can often add to our suffering. So we might be dealing with an already difficult situation. Um, let's say, you know, for example, the breakup of a relationship, which in and of itself, it, you know, is very difficult. Um, and then this inner dialogue may get on top of that, laid on top of that, you know, what's wrong with me, that, we, you know, I'm not good enough, that this person didn't want to stay with me or, you know, other kind, nobody's gonna, I'm never gonna meet anybody else. You know, there's something wrong with me, whatever these kinds of inner, inner narratives that may get attached to that experience that can really add to our suffering. And so the diet is all about how do we notice the inner dialogue that we get stuck in, and especially the fact that we often can get fused with our thoughts. We, we can believe our thoughts to be true. 
We can take them as absolute truth. And, and the diet helps us to pay attention to what is this diet that we're feeding ourselves all day long? You know, we feed ourselves with food all day, but we also feed ourselves with thoughts all day long. And when we can begin to pay attention to the diet that we're feeding ourselves, it creates a little bit more space so that our diet can become more nourishing, more accurate, more connected to the reality of what's here right now. And, and I think importantly, also more compassionate. And I think it, I think it, you're kind of referencing, it sounds like they're scripts, almost like the person in the movie theater is commenting on the script of the movie they're watching. And, and, um, and you, you get into detail about that too. Some of the, some of the ways our brain sort of dysfunctions and we ruminate and get stuck, but, but there's something very powerful about that because my experience, and, and I'm still, uh, you know, I'm still growing and learning about mindfulness meditation, but mine is that there's this real value in intentionally choosing to remind yourself about certain things in, in a way that works out really well. We, I tend to do it in a way of like predicting what's going to go wrong. I'm going to do that really well. I've done that over and over and over again, but there's something about using something that we have a habit of doing anyway and trying to find a way to flip it. Does that make sense? And so I wonder, is there an example that, that comes to mind for you? Um, just thinking like, well, here, here's an example. Um, like my daughter, when she went to go take her driving exam for the first time, the whole way there, she kept telling me, I, I'm not going to pass it. I'm going to fail. I'm not ready. And I can, I mean, I was like, I don't know why we're going. I mean, I really didn't. And I think I might've said, well, why don't we just not go? And I think she said, oh no, I scheduled this. I have to go after all that. But she honestly, and then she didn't pass it. And I remember thinking, you know what? I'll take you whenever you want, but next time I, I don't want to go unless you're feeling like you're ready. But there's something about and I guess, I guess I'm just still thinking about when you went into labor eight week, or you had to deliver eight weeks early that you'd already prepared. You're like, this is what I'm doing. I'm going to, I'm going to use my breathing when I have this baby. I'm going to use this breathing when I have this baby. That kind of thing it reminds me of, um, remember like the, there was that movement years ago, like the power of positive thinking, that kind of thing. It's, it's really not that. It's not gimmicky like that, but this idea about, you know, kind of, and you, I think you also quote, maybe, I don't know if it's Dan Siegel or someone in the book about whatever, you know, wherever you put your attention, that tends to grow and just the neuronal pathways that are created. And I just, um, it just feels like when you were talking earlier about you can make changes, it feels like that might be a key to how people would do make a change. That first you have to notice what, what is happening right now but then you also need to, with intention, find another way to talk to yourself. Maybe it's the compassion piece. Yeah. So I think there's a, there's a number of pieces you're touching upon there. I guess I would say on one level, mindfulness. And, and I really, in the book, I talk about this tool of the flashlight. And it's really a metaphor for mindful awareness. Um, and if we can imagine... Oh, being in a pitch black room, 
and trying to get from point A to point B with furniture and things, you'd be bumping into things, you'd be tripping. But if somebody hands you a flashlight, then the room is illuminated and you can see more clearly, you could navigate with greater ease, even though those obstacles are still there. And so when we cultivate mindful awareness, it's like having that flashlight. So we can see these mental habits that are arising and they're not bad. It's not that we have to get rid of them or that there's something wrong that we have these mental habits. It just is just part of our human condition, conditioning. Um, but, but when you talk about, you know, some of that, that inner dialogue that can be really negative and can derail us sometimes, if we, if we learn to carry our flashlight with us and to be able to see more clearly, ah, there's that noisy person at the movie theater showing up right now. And I can see, you know, some of these negative thoughts that are going through my mind, just in that space of standing and holding the flashlight and looking out and identifying what's there, um, you're, you're able to you know, see it more clearly and then there's a little bit more distance. So when we can be the observer of our internal experience rather than getting swallowed up in it, we're actually able to take a little like a half step back and be able to have that, that pause or that space to just be more responsive and less reactive to what's happening. And sometimes it's just simply noticing and being able to recognize, um, oh yeah, you know, there's those negative thoughts and I can see them and I can, I can recognize these are mental constructs. These are not absolute truth. It might feel like it in the moment, but, but it can help us from not being so swept away by those thoughts. And, and at the same time, and I think what you're also bringing up is, um, I love how Rick Hansen actually talks about this. He says that, you know, we can um, learn to, 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 to pull weeds, you know, but we can also kind of grow flowers or, or something of that nature. I'm paraphrasing a little bit, you know, but this idea, and we can learn to just, sometimes we can just be with what's there. So we can let be we can let go of things that don't serve us and we can let in. And, and so this idea of um, we sometimes just having the, the space to notice the mental habits, to notice our own thoughts and not get entang as entangled in them allows us to uh, have a little bit more freedom, a little more choice, but we can also intentionally grow and cultivate healthier mindsets. And so I think that's the other piece that you're talking about. And so we can really um, work to have our thoughts be more accurate, to be able to recognize, is this distorted? You know, I, I had a situation recently where um, I got quite triggered and stressed by some kind of insurance company thing. I won't go into the details to bore people, but you can imagine. Um, and, and it was one of those things where I, in the moment, I felt like I was at a 10. Um, and in terms of my stress level, I was just like, I, I, all these catastrophic thoughts and so forth. And I was able to remember to use my tools. I don't always, but in that moment, I sat down and took a mindful pause. And in, in that space, I was able to recognize that the reality was that this, this was really like maybe a two or three on my stress meter. And in terms of this was a glitch, this was a nuisance. It wasn't catastrophic. 
And so that space allowed me to really recalibrate and then to be able to adjust my thinking so that it became a little bit more accurate and specific to the circumstances at hand and to remind myself that this was, you know, this was can eventually we'd get resolved and, and so forth. Um, so, so we can grow a healthier diet. Um, but I think the other piece that you touched upon that's so important is part of this, this healthier diet. And I think an essential part of, um, of mindfulness as I see it too, is really learning how to be compassionate with ourselves, learning how to treat ourselves, to talk to ourselves the way that we might talk to a good friend. And for most of us, I think that that's very foreign. That's difficult. It doesn't come so easily. Yeah. Do you have ideas about why that is? You know, I'm not sure. I think from an evolutionary perspective, um, I heard Kelly McGonigal talk about this a little bit, you know, this idea of the self-critical voice and how um, there may have been some evolutionary value in terms of seeing, um, you know, what isn't working because that, that helped us to survive. Yeah. To, you know, if we could see what wasn't working, then it then really could help us focus on, okay, you know, what's missing. So, you know, what, what needs to be there. But um, so it's possible that, that that may have evolved, you know, it, over. Well, it's funny because I'm, I'm thinking now in the book, you write at one point, um, I think you say something along the lines of, what you don't notice if you're not aware, if you, if you don't have the flashlight, if you don't, the light isn't shining, the light of awareness isn't on something, then it's not possible to really change, you know, how you feel about it or the effect. So it's interesting because in a way that's kind of like, I think that is sort of the misguided way we're, we're kind of looking for trouble all the time as if that's going to help us out or something. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. And I, 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 I there's a, I often will say, and I think this is what you're referring to, this idea that we can't change what we don't see. Right. And so if we don't see the mental habits that we're trapped in, if we don't see our old conditioning that we get stuck in or the way that our mind defaults, you know, in certain ways and certain patterns, then it's very hard to change that. Mm -hmm. But if we can recognize oh, here's one of those mental habits that's arising, it really does give us a bit more choice to find a different path, to cultivate something, something else. Um, and, and I also think of it really as that we have these survival pathways, these, these old conditioned responses, but we also have more newly evolved parts of our brain and we're really wired to thrive. And so some of it is really just being able to tap into that, being able to know how to do that, because I think we all have the innate capacity for that. Um, and, and just having tools that help us practice turning on some of our thriving circuits, if you will. Um, yeah. Um and, and I think what's helpful too is that when, if, if someone is new or 
trying to start practicing meditation or new to the mindfulness, the ideas of mindfulness, it is really helpful to have tools, like a real tool, like a flashlight or um, things that are really are easy to recognize because they are part of our daily life. I had a harder time in the beginning, like, you know, I'm trying to imp- increase my awareness. What does that mean? You know what I mean? So I think that's really helpful. I, I just say that for any listeners that have maybe read a book or two and are finding it, that it's, it's a little bit harder for them to really get what it is that, that they're looking for. Um, and I say that because there's another concept that I, that I think is really interesting and really hard for people to um, practice. Well, it's hard, hard for me to practice. And that's that idea that, because you say we're sort of wired to like um, avoid, avoid pain and difficulty and, um, and we have to see, see things before we can fix them. But often when a problem shows up, we run away or we, you know, shut it out or try to bury it or numb ourselves. And you talk about another concept, which, which again, you talk about like opening the door, which makes sense. But I really got the idea though, when you said that, that if you could talk about opening the door combined with the idea of, about the finger trap, where sometimes when you open the door, then you also have to like lean into what's, what's at the door or invite what's at the door in. And um, I just think that might be a, it's hard to put that into a concise, um, something you can say quickly, but that seemed to me like you address that nicely in the book and that listeners, um, that'd be a nice takeaway for them. Yeah. Yeah, I'm happy to share that. And, and just to mention, we, you know, the, the tools, I tend to be very, I'm just a very concrete and visual learner. And so I find when I can translate things into, into visuals and things. And in fact, when I give talks, um, which uh, unfortunately with the pandemic, not able to do as much, uh, you know, in person, but, but I actually carry a little toolbox with me. And inside the toolbox, I have a flashlight and I have all, you know, these five tools that I talk about in the book. I, I have little visuals for each one of them. And the door, I have a little doorknob <laughs> that I eat. But um, so the door, yeah, that's a complex one, but I will sort of just to try to give a quick overview. Um, with the mental habit that I'm referring to there is, is what you, you, you were saying, the finger, finger trap dilemma. So there's um, in, in acceptance and commitment therapy, they use this idea of um, a, a finger trap um, and that is, if you imagine, so there's a the little gag toy where I don't, it, people may or may not be familiar with it, but you okay. stick your fingers, each finger, you know, one finger from each hand into one or the other end of this thing. And then um, you try to get out of it, you know, okay, now put your fingers out. Well, the harder you tug, the more stuck that you get. And kind of spoiler alert here, but the way to get out of this finger trap is actually to push your fingers in, in deeper into the, the trap to push them together. And then when you do that, it releases. And really the idea though, of this mental habit that we are wired biologically to avoid pain and to seek pleasure. 
And that made a lot of sense for ancestors back, you know, in the caves and savannas and um, the predators, you know, lions and tigers and real physical external threats, um, that those were things that needed to be avoided in order to survive. But in our modern lives, we, this gets translated into really trying to avoid our own internal experiences, our own you know, physical sensations and, and emotions and, and thoughts as well. Um, but, but so speaking you know, specifically to, to emotions, that it, it, you know, we tend to, when we, well, I certainly speak for myself, you know, sadness is a hard emotion to sit with. And so it's, it's a lot easier, I think, you know, sometimes to, to want to avoid that, um, to push that away or, um, you know, what all of those, what I call quote, difficult emotions, um, we tend to want to often avoid them, um, to not feel them. And what we know from research is that when we tend to suppress or avoid our emotions, it really doesn't tend to help us out so well in the long run. And, and so the, the challenge is really this idea of how do we turn towards our difficult experiences and hold them in a space of both uh, you know, spacious awareness, mindful awareness, and to hold them in a compassionate space where we can meet our own suffering with compassion. And if we can do that, it really allows us to feel whatever is there, but also to, at least as I have experienced over time, find some healing as well. And in fact, the idea of the door really came from my own therapy experience. And when I mentioned when I was younger, I had some wonderful therapists. And interestingly, you know, just the way it worked for me, a lot of the grief about my mom dying when I was 15 didn't really come out until I gave birth to my first child and becoming a mother was for me, I guess, you know, the real opportunity to work through a lot of that grief that I hadn't dealt with. And so in therapy, um, there was this idea of really opening the door and kind of allowing into the room, whatever was showing up, you know, inside of me. And at times that could be, you know, deep sadness or grief. And could I allow, you know, to, to sort of open the door and allow whatever was there to come and take a seat in the room somewhere where I could, you know, it wasn't swallowing me up. It wasn't sort of sitting on top of me, but where I could take a curious look where I could just notice um, what was there and learn how to, to really relate to it in a different way that didn't involve, you know, just needing to, to push it away or avoid it. So it's kind of makes me think that um, a, another characteristic, I think, if you read the book is you realize that it, there are, these tools are helpful in everyday life. And then they're helpful for really big things that come like, you know, when you're going through a crisis and you're, you know, having a baby early or when you're, you're suddenly faced with something you thought you had resolved and it, it comes back resurfaces, comes back up again for you. Um, I like, I like that a lot too, because um, 
I think they, they go together. I think that, you know, my understanding, I'm starting to realize like, you know, it's this, the little things day in and day out that you do that strengthen the practice so that then it, it's really useful when you have a, a big, scary something at the door, it makes it, it makes it easier to do that. And um, yeah, so I think it's, I think that's really, really helpful. Um, and I like that anybody can do it, that, you know, that it's something, you know, have you had feedback from, from people about like using these particular tools and I think, um, you know, like you were saying, my, my goal or my, my hope is in terms of just making it accessible yeah. for people. And, and that, um, you know, some of these practices are, one of my medit- teachers, meditation teachers says, um, you know, uh, short moments many times. So this idea that we don't necessarily, although certainly there are tremendous benefits of you know, meditating and really sort of training and, you know, sitting for long periods of time. But, but, but the purpose of this book was really to help people have tools that they could just carry into their day-to-day life as well, even if they're not doing more of that more formal meditation practice. Um, how do we just sort of carry these tools into our day in short moments, repeatedly, over time that then begin to just transform how we show up and how we experience things. Um, and you, you, you were talking about kind of some of the, the day-to-day things and then helping with some of the bigger challenges. Um, and, and a story came to mind that when you were saying that, that I could share quickly um, that had to do with my father and so this is actually so another tool, just kind of introducing another quick, quick little um, introduction of another mental habit and another tool that I talk about. And so the mental habit that I refer to is the Velcro problem <laughs> that, as Rick Hansen says, and this is really based on um, his, fr- his phrase here, this idea that our brains are like Velcro for the negative experiences and Teflon for the positive ones. So it's really it's easy for us to hold on to the negative things that happen in our day and miss these little positive moments that might otherwise slip away. And so the tool that I introduced for that is what I call the magnifying glass. This idea of remembering to try, you know, trying to carry around a magnifying glass and how can we magnify these little moments that uh, otherwise, you know, may, may fall right under our, our radar. We may not even notice, but that can add, um, that can touch into to qualities of gratitude or joy or presence in our life. And that sometimes these little moments added together can really um, make up you know, the fabric uh, mm-hmm. of our life. So in this quick story um, of difficulty, my dad went through some, some very serious health challenges. Um, thankfully, he's doing really well right now. Um, but several years ago, he had um, ended up in the hospital sort of twice, two weeks apart and and was um, the second time around was left in the emergency room for, I don't know, four or five hours before somebody even attended him. And at, by that point, it had turned into a life-threatening emergency. 
he needed to have this emergency surgery. And I remember visiting him in the hospital the day or two after that. And I was expecting that he would be talking about, you know, my God, I can't believe this hospital. I can't believe that I was, you know, left there. And now I had to, you know, have this other surgery and all of this and, and just recounting all the negative things um, and stressors. And not that those things, of course, weren't part of his experience, but what he, what struck me was that he just kept talking about how wonderful the nurses were. And every time a nurse would come into the room, he would say, you know, oh, and you know, this is so-and-so and, and he or she's just, they, they've been so wonderful to me and thank you so much for, you know, taking good care of me. And so there was just this genuine moments of gratitude and appreciation um, that really kind of, to me, illustrate this idea of the magnifying glass that, that really helped him, I think, to get through what was an incredibly challenging situation. And of course, there were many difficult emotions in there, but just being able to find some of those little moments to magnify helped uh, in otherwise, you know, really distressing uh, situation. Um, I think that's, that's really, that's really motivation for people too. It's like, because this isn't just about increasing your awareness of unnecessary suffering or you know, being able to notice our unhelpful thinking habits. It's also about cultivating the ability to just, yeah, see more of the little, little joys in life and, you know, and add pleasure back in or just being able to, to um, experience the pleasures that are already there that we've just sort of tuned out. Absolutely. And actually there's something um, that you reminded me that I, that I want to share because I think it's important that the way that I see these mental habits is ultimately that they're really um, they're opportunities. So there's a, a, a Zen proverb that, is, that says obstacles do not block the path, they are the path. And so when we can begin to see these mental habits clearly, they actually become opportunities to grow inner resources. And so there's a gift in each one. And so that when we work with each of these five mental habits that I talk about, we're really cultivating um, these inner resources for, for um, a feeling of safety and stability within ourselves, within our bodies. We're cultivating the gift of presence to really how do we show up and be you know, fully present in this moment. We're cultivating the gift of self-compassion and also a perspective, being able to see things from a wider perspective, um, the, the gifts of, of trust and acceptance, being able to trust ourselves and accepting difficult situations and kind of trusting our, our, our own ability to handle what's there and, and cultivating joy and gratitude. So all of these are really gifts that come out of just being able to, to notice and be aware of and work with the mental habits that are there. I'm glad you shared that. Um, I, I, I'm a big fan of Tara Brock too. And she, she talks about her early introduction to um, meditation and was a class that was supposed to be about um, 
suffering. And she was like, yeah, I'm not interested in taking a class about suffering. You know, she just was like, not interested. And I think there, you know, it, it is such a powerful way to overcome and reduce the suffering in our lives. And I think a lot of times people know that angle of meditation and uh, sometimes they falsely believe you can avoid all suffering and get to some Zen state, which, which, you know, you, you, you quickly learn that's not possible, but it's also about cultivating joy. So, and, and yeah, and magnifying the moments that we miss because we aren't present. Yeah. I think that um, that's something that I certainly try to do, especially, you know, with all going on in the world right now and all the challenges to really try to um, find, find those moments of joy, find those moments of positivity, those uh, moments of kindness, you know, and, and compassion and all of that. That's great. Well, thank you. You've given us a lot of your time and I appreciate that. Before I let you go, I just wondered if there was anything you're working on now. I mean, during the pandemic, it's limiting everyone, but, or if there's anything kind of that you've been thinking about or maybe planning for the future that you want to let us in on? <laughs> yeah. So, so I guess just one little side comment and then share something that I am planning for the future. Um, you, you know, I think just uh, myself personally working on, I, I find um, one of my graduate teachers uh, said, you know, we, we, teach what we most need to learn ourselves. And so I've been finding actually during the pandemic um, that these tools for me to kind of come back to these tools have been immensely helpful for me in terms of just dealing with those challenges and uncertainties and all of that. So that's been kind of my personal journey at present, just really working with these, you know, every day. Um, but in terms of one thing I'm really excited about is that I have put together an eight-week class and that I just started um, one series kind of piloting this class, but that I am, um, and it really pulls together my first book, The Transformative Power of 10 Minutes, as well as this Dancing on the Tightrope, that book, and kind of pulls from both of those and is an eight-week class that teaches people about understanding these mental habits and learning these tools and being able to do so with some experiential practices and, and that kind of thing. So very excited about um, starting this, this class and I'm hoping in the, in the coming year to really be able to offer more of this that I'm, you know, doing this online. So um, something that uh, people are interested in finding out more, they can reach out to me. Yeah. Great. And where, where's a good place? Should they just go to your website? Yeah, I think my, the website is, is, is the best place probably to find out more, you know, to, to learn more about me or, or my books. I have free meditations and tons of blogs and things where I try to share practical tools. And there's certainly a contact page there where people can. Okay, that's great. And we'll make sure that your website is um, listed in the blog on the New Books Network so people can great. find it there. Great. Well, thank you. I really appreciate um, you know, the, all the tools that I was able to glean from the book and I'll be checking out your eight week class. I'll, I'll be looking for that. Thank you so much. It was so wonderful to talk with you. Nice to have you. <laughs>